It's Episode 9 of the Mission Life Podcast. Last fall, the news was all about the refugee crisis in Europe. Now our attention has turned to the presidential election. But refugees continue to stream into Europe and arrive in the USA. Today, you'll hear from a young couple who has opened up their lives and home to Syrian refugees right here in Atlanta. What have they learned and what advice do they have for us? That's what we'll talk about today on the Mission Life Podcast. God is using it to open their hearts to Him. You know, speaking about Saudi Arabia specifically, saying, you know, they have all, they have these places that they could house people, these tents that he's talking about, but they won't accept refugees. But they're sending money to Germany to build a mosque for every 200 Syrians. And then he points out, but then you have Christians, and he calls them pastors, this is a Muslim man. He says, you have pastors going to Greece and to Europe and in America that are welcoming and are giving food and are giving clothing and are helping the refugees. And he goes, which one is doing the will of God? friends, welcome to the Mission Life Podcast. I'm Jeff. Thank you for listening. If you're new to the show, then you should know that this podcast is produced every other Thursday and show notes are found at my website, jeffreams.com. Check out previous episodes on that website or iTunes as well. This podcast features stories of people putting their faith into action. I serve Dunwoody Baptist Church just outside of Atlanta as missions pastor which means I oversee our global and our community outreach. In that role, I get to meet amazing people doing amazing things literally around the world. Many of the people I interview are supported by Dunwoody Baptist or people I come across in my work. Their stories and what they have learned can be a great encouragement, but also teach us a few things about following Jesus. Today, you'll hear part one of a conversation with Scott and Jenna, a young couple living in Clarkston, Georgia, who have opened up their lives and their home to Syrian refugees. You'll hear them share their thoughts on why the refugees are not welcomed into, into some Muslim countries, their experiences of Syrian refugees right here, and what it's like to host Syrians for an American Thanksgiving. Clarkston is a destination for about 3,000 refugees every year from countries such as Iraq, Nepal, Burma, Sudan, and now Syria. Scott serves with a ministry called Global Frontier Missions. I'll share more about them later in the podcast. Late last fall, I sat down with Scott and Jenna in their apartment to learn more about how they were responding to the refugee crisis. Jenna had just returned from serving on the Greece border with Macedonia. She talked about what she saw there. There wasn't a single Syrian that I met or talked to that had not lost either a family member or a very close friend in an explosion in, in Syria or in the fighting. Everybody had seen death. Um, I met one family who was a, a later at night and they, it was a busy day in the camp. 
Um, and so they were just sitting outside of the tent waiting for their number to be called so they could cross the border. And I was walking by and they called me over to sit down. And so it was a mother and then she had five children and then their spouses and their children. And so her daughter um, called me over and started talking with me and, you know, just having friendly conversation and they were laughing at my Arabic and trying to communicate with them. Um, and so she was explaining, you know, she had been married for five years. At that point, she was a month pregnant. She was her and her husband. She had had three babies before and her three children died in an explosion. And then I met her brother who had been married and had two children and his wife and his children died in an explosion. And then I met the youngest boy who was about 10 or 11 and he was showing me the scars that he had from being in an explosion. And so it's really just eye-opening because we can't really even fathom what life would be like um, in a country like that and seeing war on a daily basis and for five years, you know, it's just crazy and we can't really even begin to understand what that's like. From your understanding, why don't why do you think they're not going to Muslim, other Muslim countries, or are they? I think they would like to, but I don't think other Muslim countries are accepting them. They can flee to places like Jordan and Lebanon and live in camps, but they can't actually be resettled in those countries to the point where they actually have a life. You know, refugees that flee to Jordan aren't allowed to work legally, and so they cannot provide for their family. And so they really have no future life there. And so they want to go somewhere where they can potentially, where they have the opportunity to um, build a future for them and their kids. They want their kids to be able to go to school and to learn and to have a future and then be able to become engineers and doctors and lawyers. And they don't really have the opportunity in a lot of the neighboring countries. And I think, <laughs> I think just like in European countries, they're worried about economic instability and political instability. And I think one of the issues that we run across in with Saudi Arabia, especially, who could easily take a lot of refugees almost instantly. Um, I mean, in Medina, set up for Mecca is our tents that could house two million refugees that are already in existence. They're there for the Hajj and the pilgrimage already. But I think what they're worried about, at least the king, what the king is worried about is bringing in people that could whisper rebellion in the ears of his people and create instability in his kingdom. Because ultimately his, his desire is to maintain power for himself and his family. And he's already on questionable footing, potentially, as a king. And so to bring in two million refugees from a different country. Again, you do have the Shia Sunnah uh, issues as well, but they're not from a kingdom. They're from a, you know, a different political system and they might try to bring that into, if they were to amass enough support inside of that country to be a force, if you bring 2 million Sy Syrians into Saudi Arabia, they would have a strong voice uh, against the king potentially. And that may create revolution in his uh, very carefully balanced political economy. The Syrians and the Iraqis, though, are seeing, like, God is using it to open their hearts to him. I mean, I've had multiple people here, you know, speaking about Saudi Arabia specifically, 
saying, you know, they have all they have these places that they could house people, these tents that he's talking about, um, but they won't accept refugees. But they're sending money to Germany to build a mosque for every 200 Syrians. And then he points out, but then you have Christians, and he calls them pastors. This is a Muslim man. He says, you have pastors going to Greece and to Europe and in America that are welcoming and are giving food and are giving clothing and are helping the refugees. And he goes, which one is doing the will of God? Like, they can see the difference. And, like, it's definitely God is using that to draw people to himself and show them maybe Islam is not the way to God. Maybe it's not the, the one true path to get to Allah. Um, and they can see the difference now. So. so part of what they're looking at is over here, the reason why we're leaving our homes and can't be in our homeland anymore is because of Muslims. ISIS is Muslim. Uh, a lot of the conflict is being created by Muslims. We're being killed and chased away by Muslims. And we leave our country and our homeland and we look towards the bastion of Islam, which is Saudi, and potentially the wealthiest Arab country, and Saudi closes its borders. And so they're caught in between these two Muslim entities questioning, wait a second, people in our religion are chasing us away, other people in our religion are blocking our path to get to safety. And then again, for, for better or worse, most Arab Muslims believe that European and American nations are Christian. There's negatives to that, there's pros to that. Uh, in this case, they look at that and they see, okay, Germany is taking people, and France is taking people, and America is taking people. And when they come to America and they run into people like Jenna and I, when they run into other people, they're in many cases being surrounded by believers when they get off the boats in um greece and they're met by samaritan's purse and some of these other openly christian organizations they see the answer to some of those things people christians whether it's true or not they're believing that christians are giving them food in many cases it is true christians are giving them food they're helping them along their journey when they get into refugee camps christians are there when they get resettled in different nations like America or here specifically in Clarkston, when they get resettled here, sometimes Christians are coming around them and helping them figure out how to get their kids in school and how to take them to doctor's appointments and read their mail and teach them English and all of these things. And they're seeing the difference. And like Jenna said, when you look at from a Muslim's perspective, Christians are giving me food and a place to live and offering me an opportunity to reestablish my life and to raise my kids the way that I want them to be raised. And the, the highest country of Islam is sending money so that refugees can have a place to pray. We see that separation between, okay, maybe the spiritual needs, but felt needs and spiritual needs are going together and they're asking those questions we've had that conversation come up twice specifically once with jenna once with me with two different muslim men and she heard similar things in the refugee camp in greece those questions are coming to the forefront 
And it's impossible for me to look at this situation and not think of Joseph. And, hey, you guys meant this for evil in my life, but God meant it for good. And so all of those things that you set into motion that put me into slavery and put me into prison has now allowed me to be a light to Egypt and to the nations and to save essentially the known world through God's guidance and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I really believe that you can use those same words in this situation here. What ISIS and the civil war in Syria and what the spiritual principalities over there are meaning for evil is actually being used for the good of the people that are on the fence the people that are actively seeking God, who aren't just looking for an ideology or for a reason to hate, but who are actually trying to seek God. And they see these perverted forms of what they thought was true. And then they see Jesus and the Holy Spirit actively working in the lives of people that they're coming into contact with. And that decision is becoming easier and easier to make. And in fact, one of the people that we had those conversations with has since become a believer. And his family has become believers and they're going to the Arabic church and they're trying to be, they're trying to talk about their faith with other Iraqis in the community. And you see God making these changes in their lives. And when you put those two things into perspective, it's like, yes, this is horrible stuff, but there is fruit that's coming out of that based on the way that we as his body are interacting in that situation. And I think that's the key is that it is God's people working through his purposes in the situations that he's created or is allowed to happen. It's our um, intervention into that and bringing Jesus into that that is answering some of the questions that Muslims are asking. While some still debate whether or not Syrians should come into the United States, they're already here. I remember attending a meeting with other church leaders in the fall of 2014, where some people from the State Department told us that Syrian refugees will start arriving in the USA in late 2015 and early 2016, and they have. So I asked Scott and Jenna about the Syrians they have met here in Clarkston and how they've engaged them. One thing I want to make clear, and then Jenna can answer the rest of this question, but there is a there I think is a misconception amongst Americans in general and even in the believing community that bombs that are going off three weeks ago are sending people to America right this second. And that's a complete misconception. And so Clarkston has several Syrian families but they did not flee a month ago. They fled three, four years ago based on the civil war conflict and the rise of ISIS. But they've been in the refugee system and the process for several years before they get here. And I think that's an important distinction to make is that even when Obama is talking about allowing in 10,000 additional Syrians, He's not talking about taking a helicopter and scooping up 10,000 out of the migration and planting them in America. He's talking about bringing in 10,000 that have already been in refugee camps in this process looking for resettlement, have already been vetted through the 17 various layers of refugee resettlement screenings and background checks 
those are the ones that are going to be that are at the front of the line to come to America. The ones that are leaving right now are going to be in that process and in camps for multiple years before they have that opportunity. And it's important that we understand the distinction between what's happening in Europe and what's happening in America, because they're two different models. Because the refugees are migrating into the various places in Europe, which does potentially pose uh, security risks. But no Syrian, no Iraqi, no Afghani refugees of any type can get into America because there's no way to get here unless they're invited effectively um, by the United States and have gone through that vetting process. And so I think it's important to know that the Syrians that we have contact with have been in the pipeline already for several years before they even get here. So that is a long and arduous process. Yeah, I mean, it's just important for people to understand that the Syrians and the Iraqis and Afghanis that are migrating to Europe, when they choose to make that migration, they are forfeiting pretty much their opportunity to come to America, um, at least at this point. Now, if, if you know, permanent camps are set up in those countries, in Germany and these different places, because those camp countries cannot support that many refugees, then potentially the U.S. can say, okay, we can look into resettling people from these camps. But at this point, um, they're only resettling people that are in camps that have fled to Jordan and to Lebanon and Iraq and the people that are in camps still in the Middle East. So tell me about the, the, family you, the families you've got here. Yeah, so um, I've been able to meet... Um, about four different Syrian families that are here. One family, it's a husband and a wife, and then they actually have six children. Um, they were in the Zatari refugee camp in Jordan, and they lived there for a little over three years. She had three babies in that camp, you know, in a tent with no medical care, and, and she hardly doesn't speak any English. You know, her kids haven't been in school for a while because there's uh, there isn't an opportunity in those camps for them really to continue education very well. It's been great, one, just like getting to talk to them, um, especially with everything that's going on and everything you're hearing in the news and the media, and there's not a ton of people engaging them. And so it's been great just to hear a little bit about their stories. And it's limited because the English is so low and my Arabic is not at that level yet. So the one thing that I think every family has stated is just how grateful they are to finally feel safe and that they have a place where they feel like eventually they'll be able to provide for their family and um, not have to worry about explosions and not have to worry about this. You do see some of the the effects of war just in different families. A lot of the families end up all sleeping on the floor in the living room together because there's you know, they're still scared and, and you know those things still come up from being in years of war. Um, so you see some of the effects that the war has played on um, on each of them and in the kids. And um, But yeah, overall they're just all extremely, extremely grateful to be here. And you know they didn't necessarily want to leave Syria. They, they liked their country, they liked their life in Syria, but they want to provide a safe place for their children and a place for their children to have a future, um, which is just not a reality for them right now in the Middle East anywhere. So, so yeah, so for Thanksgiving, we 
it was kind of a mixture of things. I had just gotten back from Greece and everything was blowing up in the media about Syrians and just people were kind of scared of them. They were, they've heard, you know, some of the things that are happening and, and were a little bit scared and different things. And so for Thanksgiving, we had three different Syrian families and two Iraqi families over. Uh, so we had about 30 people total. Um, it's my first time ever making Thanksgiving dinner, so... You, you made a traditional Thanksgiving? I did, I made very traditional food, so... And they ate most of it, so... <laughs> did they bring anything? They did. Um, I told... I didn't ask them to bring anything, and they knew it was a holiday. Um, so typically they don't have... In their culture, it doesn't mean they need to bring anything. One person brought a Syrian dish, some rice and with some vegetables and stuff, and... It's funny, I was helping all the Syrian kids get their, their plates and I asked them what they want and they, just the rice. I said, okay, do you want this? No, just the rice. <laughs> there was one kid that was brave enough to, to try all of it and then he'd tell them what to come back and get and say, oh, the turkey's good. Can you get the turkey? Kids are the same. What did they call the gravy? The gravy, it was called turkey soup. Everybody <laughs> just called soup. it turkey soup. I love the turkey soup. <laughs> I like it too. <laughs> so yeah, it was fun. Um, it was just really a tradition. We just ate and, you know, they helped us clean everything up and we sent food home with everybody and, you know, after a couple of hours just went on our way, but um, really just wanted to invite them in to an American holiday and tradition. You know, we've been reading through this book about honor and shame and that's the culture that they're from and how to better reach out to people from an honor and shame culture and a huge part of it is community. There's such a community-based culture and so being able to invite people into a community of believers um, and something that we are already doing and just saying, hey, come share our life with us, come share this holiday, um, something that we do every year, you know, come share our food and come um, just hang out with us and and it really does mean a lot to them and that that makes them feel welcomed in this country a little bit more it makes them feel like they have people that they can trust and really just makes them feel loved i mean how many times did jesus eat with people you know it was a lot so food is a great way to just invite people into your life and i think a part of it too is you know part of incarnational living but a part of that is just inviting people into your the natural rhythms of your life already. So it's not that we have to do this crazy different thing and dramatically change the way that we're living. It's not that, okay, well, we don't, we'll have Thanksgiving, but we'll make all Arab food. I mean, you could do that, I suppose, but like, you don't have to. And so Jenna and I are going to have Thanksgiving with our friends, regardless of whether Syrians are there or not. We're going to have the same conversations regardless of whether Syrians are there or not. And ultimately the goal is to demonstrate to them that community is available with Americans and that we are welcoming them. That community is available with believers and they can see what that looks like, um, even as they're questioning their own faith potentially. Um, and with the hopes that in our normal lives and in our in our normal rhythms, we're talking about Jesus and what we're learning, and we're having those conversations with them in the room and with them not in the room, and so we don't have to make dramatic shifts in our lifestyle necessarily to invite these people into 
into our context. And I think for us here in Clarkston, it's mainly refugees. But for you guys in Dunwoody, it's professionals. Or on the Georgia Tech campus, it's international students. I mean, there's a statistic out there that says that 85% of international students are never invited into an American home. And that's tragic from a, especially from cultures that high, with high values on hospitality. And it's tragic for us, I think, as believers with a mandate to be hospitable and with a mandate to show the love of Jesus to people. And yet we lock them out of our homes and we're afraid of them and, and all of those things. And it does take a little shift in mentality. But once you make that slight shift, it's really not all that complicated. There's nothing overly special about me and Jenna. Um, we just happened to, we just happened to, we happened to, and we felt God's call and we intentionally moved into an area with a lot of internationals. And for us, it's easy in Clarkston. It's easier in Clarkston than anywhere else because you can't walk 10 feet without running into an international and they're constantly being resettled right next to us. How are they received by the other refugee communities in Clarkston? The refugees still pretty much try to stay kind of in their own little groups. You know, the Nepalis hang out with Nepalis and the Iraqis hang out with Iraqis and Ethiopians with Ethiopians. And a huge part of that is mainly because of language barriers um, and cultural barriers. But Syrians and Iraqis intermix quite a bit. Um, their, their dialect of Arabic is very similar and their cultures are just pretty much exactly the same. And they're being persecuted they're both being persecuted by ISIS. They've both had ISIS impact their lives, and so they understand, they have that experience. And so they've, you know, I've seen multiple Iraqi and, and Syrians hanging out together. So. That's it for this episode of the Mission Life Podcast. If you found this conversation helpful, Would you share it with someone you know? Maybe post it on your Facebook page or send the link jeffreams.com slash 09 to a friend who might have questions about refugees or how to help. Get together and discuss what you learned from Scott and Jenna. You can also find a summary of this conversation on my website at jeffreams.com. Like I said in the opening, Scott serves with Global Frontier Missions in Clarkston. GFM is a training center for people considering cross-cultural service. Before heading off to another country, why not test your calling and gifts right here in America? GFM also hosts mission teams, trains church planters, and does a lot of other great work. To learn more about GFM, check them out at globalfrontiermissions.org. Thank you for listening. Check back as we post part two of this conversation and go deeper into issues facing refugees and how we can respond as we seek to live on mission for Jesus Christ.